Alright, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 6 is where we will be. Hebrews chapter 6. Let me say once again, Happy Father's Day to our fathers in here. We don't get you a cute gift like Mother's on Mother's Day. Um, I don't think you want flowers. If it was up to me, we'd give you a steak. Uh, but we were vetoed on that. Um, but happy Father's Day to you. Hope you have a great day. Hope you celebrate the fathers that you do have uh, and celebrate even more the Father that we have uh, in heaven. A um, couple of announcements as we get started. Uh, one, uh, be aware our announcements are on the back of our worship guides, and so we won't have a long uh, announcement time within the service, so be sure to check those out. A few things happening this week that are important for us. Uh, also, I just got back yesterday from Camp Blessing, uh, Texas. I spent a week up there serving with them. And so if you remember, uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but we sent $900 over to them a few months ago uh, to provide camper scholarships for them. So it's a camp for kids with special needs. Uh, if you're not caught up on that uh, with us, uh, and so they serve kids with autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, all kinds of different things. Um, and we sent over there scholarship to campers, and I was up there this week and got to see our money in action uh, and see uh, kids being served, parents being served, um, people serving there, being grown and challenged in their faith. And so uh, it was a real beautiful time of being up there and seeing really the kingdom uh, happening uh, on earth as is in heaven as Jesus prayed and, and then be able to come back and, and send their thanks to you uh, for being a part of that, uh, for uh, receiving the grace of Jesus and receiving the gospel and then saying, um, we're going to do something about it. We're going to live on it. And so we're going to understand that Jesus has won a victory, that he reigns right now, and then we're going to go enact that in the world. And we're going to say, no, we care and we love and we'll send resources, we'll send support. Uh, and so that's what's happening at Camp Blessings. So I wanted to send you their thanks uh, and let you know that our money is being used very wisely. Uh, I had a great time up there, but glad to be here with you guys. Hebrews 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Uh, we're going to finish the chapter off today. We're walking through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 13. Human beings learn very early uh, the concept of a promise. I mean, it's a very basic kind of concept to us. Almost so basic uh, that it can be hard to define. It's one of those words like beauty. It's like, how do you define that? What's a promise? Well, it's when you promise something. I mean, it's just so intrinsic to who we are, to our nature. Um, this guarantee, like you can count on this, this is going to happen. And we learn from a very early age that promises can be broken, particularly in our human relationships, promises can be broken. So unfortunately on Father's Day, the legacy of a lot of fathers is what? Broken promises. I would challenge our fathers here this morning to be remembered for promises kept. But we learn very quickly to discern between promises. Um, so we have to depend, uh, we have to, to think through who made the promise. Are they a trustworthy person? Should I count on that? Should I believe that promise? Or also kind of what, what the seriousness um, of that promise was. So was it, I mean, just kind of a silly promise? Or was it a very strong promise? Was it made in all seriousness? And so hopefully uh, all of us have at some point in our life been able to make promises that were very gut, like very primal to us, that we meant beyond a shadow of a doubt and, and that we know that we would fulfill if it was ever called upon. And so um, one that I can share with you is my brother. When he was born, I was 12 years old, and I can remember feeling this intense amount of love for him, like I've never felt toward another human being. Um, from the moment he was born, I mean, in the hospital as a premature baby in ICU holding him in my arms, just this intense amount of love. And if we're honest, babies, particularly infants, are not much more than appetites surrounded by noise. I mean, that's what they, am I all right? I mean, that's appetites, I mean, layered in noise. Um, I mean, physically, I mean, they 
So he never once complimented me or encouraged me or asked me how my day was going or anything like that. But from the moment he came out, I mean, I just loved him. And I can remember making a promise to him. I mean, he wasn't even old enough to understand it. He was a little infant. Um, but just that I will be there for you. I will never abandon you. If you need me, I will be there. I'll come through for you. And there's this, this gut thing in the inside of me that I, I still feel to this day. There's this bond. There's this promise made that I plan on keeping. The scriptures are full of God making promises to us, to his creation and to his followers. And some are bigger than others, some are smaller than others. There are the big promises of joy and life and salvation and eternal life. And over and over again, the scriptures are going to say that when God promises something, that should lead his children to hope. To expecting that to happen. To believing, to trusting, to faith. And then that faith should lead us to endurance should lead us to a state of perseverance through hard times, through trials. And so again, this is what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's about encouraging Christians to persevere, to stay strong in their faith no matter what comes at them, whether it be persecution or trials or suffering, pain, sickness, hardship. And in our passage this morning, the author is going to unpack for us the perfectness of God's promise. And the way that that leads us to hope and how that hope leads us into endurance. So we'll pick it up in verse 13 here. Um, Hebrews 6 verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, so he quotes here from Genesis 22, and it's a story about Abraham. And he's assuming here that, that his audience knows the story of Abraham. Abraham is a very important figure in the scriptures, actually just in history in general. I mean, if you list off maybe some of the most influential men um, throughout history, Abraham has to be up there. Um, lots of wars still trace their origin back to Abraham. I mean, a whole huge section of uh, humanity traces their faith back to Abraham. He's a very important figure. Um, and he's assuming that we know what's happening here. And he's quoting from Genesis 22 where God is reiterating a promise. He's repeating the promise to Abraham. A promise that was made in Genesis 12. And so we talk about Genesis 12 a lot here because it's a huge part of the story of God. It's a huge part of the history of creation. So in Genesis 3, we remember at the very beginning of Scripture... Creation falls. Humanity rebels against God. Sin enters into the picture. And with sin, death. Throughout the scripture, sin equals death. Where you see sin, you see death. Where you see death, sin was before it. The wages of sin is death. James would say sin, when it's fully conceived, births death. This is what happens. This is what sin brings with it. And so death enters into creation. Destruction, all these things, enter into God's good creation. And then Genesis 4, you have the first murder. Human beings decided it would be a good idea to kill each other. Genesis 6, God is so fed up with everybody that he decides to what? Kill most of them. You have the flood. Genesis 11, they've repopulated, and now they decide they're so strong and smart, they're going to build a tower to heaven and take control. <coughs> and you have, here's this 3 through 11, Genesis, the very beginning of the story of history, of creation. You have sin spiraling out of control. You have evil, death, wickedness, increasing, increasing, and increasing. And in Genesis 12, the whole story shifts. It twists. It, there's a turning point. Even the tone changes. And God does not come to creation with anger, wrath, vengeance, anything like that. But he comes with a promise. And he comes to a man named Abram. Later it would be called Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, you, you old man with no kids, you're going to have a family. They're going to become a nation, 
And through that nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. All nations should be blessed through you, through your family. This is God's reaction to what's gone wrong in creation. We say this all the time because it's so important for us to understand. Um, so our first blank here, God's reaction to sin and death was to start a plan of salvation through Abraham and his family. This is why Israel was created. Somehow God was going to undo sin and death, remove creation from the effects of the fall. And so what we need to do here, and why we repeat this kind of stuff over and over and over again, is because one, it's right underneath almost all of the scriptures. Right here especially. It's right underneath. The scriptures are assuming we know this. That it has been digested inside of who we are and how we think. And then two, we need to start seeing the world through the lens of Scripture. And so instead of being faced with pain and sickness and those type of things and just hurting and feeling bad, we need to start to understand that what we're experiencing in that moment is Genesis 3. So when, when I get sick or when I am tired or when a relationship goes wrong in my life, Instead of just suffering and being miserable, the scriptures say, hey, you're experiencing the fall. Put scripture lenses over your experience. This is Genesis 3. And when I experience hope, and when I experience an expectation and a longing for things to be better, and for God to fix what's gone wrong, to rescue creation, the scriptures say, hey, you're experiencing Genesis 12, where God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise. Now, he makes the promise in Genesis 12, and the story of Abraham continues. In Genesis 15, he makes the promise again. In Genesis 17, he makes the promise. And then we get to Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, if you remember, it's a story of Abraham called by God to sacrifice Isaac. Um, we actually preached through this story a while back in our last Family Traits series. It's online if, if you'd like to listen to it. Um, so God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I want you to go up on a mountain and kill your son. So by this point, Abraham has had a son. The part of the promise has started to be fulfilled. But then God comes to Abraham and says, go up on a mountain, sacrifice him, kill him. Now this is a crazy story, not only for the reason that, I mean, God just asked Abraham to kill his son. So he loves his son. His son's kind of important to him. Um, I was at camp this week, and real quick, we have applications for the campers, and the parents write stuff about their kids so that we know how to take care of them, things like that. Well, one of the applications, let's hope she's not listening to the podcast, um, ended with an essay, and the very last sentence of the entire essay was, we really like him a lot. And I was like, okay, just in case we were wondering if they were on the fence about their child, they really like him. I guess we should take care of this kid. Um, we really like him a lot. So Abraham really liked Isaac a lot. He kind of had an emotional attachment to him. But beyond that, theologically, what's happening in the story is God is saying, I want you to end any chance you could understand of this promise being fulfilled. Isaac is the promise bearer. The promise doesn't go forward without Isaac. So Abraham's big hope that he's been given from God, that God would use his family to bless all the nations. Now God says, I want to take what you understand is the only possible route for that to happen, and I want you to kill it. What he's doing here is he's jeopardizing the entire promise, the whole story from the beginning. So Abraham goes up on the mountain, is faithful, starts to sacrifice Isaac, God intervenes, and then God, in Genesis 22, verse 17, says this, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. He repeats the promise. After this time of test, after this trial, he says, you need to understand, I made a promise and it's going to happen. 
Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Later on in Genesis 22, right after this, he says, And through you I will bless all the nations. I have made you a promise, and it will happen. Now, the reason we're told this story is, one, to introduce this promise, the promise of God fixing creation, rescuing us, and then two, to show us an example of faithfulness. Abraham was faithful. And so he is one, verse 15 says, who obtained the promise. Abraham is a model, in a sense, of one who inherits God's promises. If you remember uh, in verse 12, at the end of our passage last week, um, the author is begging us not to be sluggish, but in 12, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's saying, hey, look at, look at Abraham. He's done this. Let's imitate Abraham. And how did Abraham find the promises? Well, through faith and through patience. Just like verse 12 told us. So Abraham, particularly here in this story, had this unwavering faith, had this without reservation trust in God. And so God tells him to do something ridiculous, and he does what? He goes on a journey. He goes up a mountain. He holds a knife in his hand. He ties down his son. Maybe the, the peak of human faith in history. And he's saying through faith, through trusting God, through understanding that when God says, go here, you go there. When God says, say this, you say this. When God says, do this, you do this. Through faith, you find the inheritance. And then through patience. Because Abraham had to wait a long time for a son. Abraham also didn't even get to see really the promise fulfilled. He saw the very, 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 very beginning of it. Patience as well, because Abraham was just as big of a screw-up as all of us are. And so this is such a great encouragement for the scriptures. Like, we read stories like Abraham, and he, he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and we're going, whoa, I can't even, like, tithe. Like, our level of commitment is way off here. I'm like, should I write a check for 10%? He's like, I guess I'm going to kill my son. Like, he's on the varsity team here. I'm on the rug team. But Abraham, as we read the story, he's, he's struggling over and over, and he's making mistakes. He's not having faith. He patiently follows God, learns about God, gets to know God, and grows into this life of faith, the father of faith to us. He says, imitates those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's given this promise, um, but then something real interesting is happening here uh, that Hebrews wants to point out to us. So in verse 16, uh, he'll keep talking, saying, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final, for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Let the scriptures say he, God is... God is, in a sense, trying to here's, here's what, he's trying to massage the hearts of his followers into trusting him. And so Abraham, the heirs of the promise, which would be Abraham, his descendants, even up to you and I, the heirs of the promise that God will undo sin and death, will get rid of its effects from creation. The heirs of the promise were, were given his faithfulness to trust him. So Abraham, his descendants, they put their trust in his faithfulness. They put their trust in who God was. So again, we have to discern promises based on who makes them. If a four-year-old makes a promise to me, I, I might not count on that. I might not write the check for that yet. If God makes a promise, 
the scriptures say you, you cash that check. He's faithful. Abraham is his sins, the heir to the promise, the trust based on his faithfulness. And what's interesting here is that um, in the text, in Genesis 22, we don't see this quite in the quotation, but right before this in Genesis 22, God swears by himself. God makes an oath in a sense. Uh, and so he's, again, he's massaging his followers' hearts. He's trying to get them into a place of trust. He's trying to patiently and gently pull them into a place where he, they trust him, where they believe him when he says he's going to do something. And he does this in Genesis 22 by, by making an oath on himself. And so this is real interesting. Um, we have this idea of oath. I mean, it's very historical from the very beginning. And so we often swear by things greater than ourselves. I mean, this is a very common practice throughout all of humanity. In fact, in our court system today, if you are sworn in for testimony, you will be asked to put your hand on a Bible and swear that you are telling the truth, which, just for the thinkers, is a very interesting commentary on our nation and on the way we view and do certain things. Just pragmatically, we couldn't be farther away from the scriptures, but there's still something in our very court systems that say, hey, let's put our hand on the Bible. Let's take an oath and swear by the Bible. Then, of course, throughout history, people have always sworn by God. I swear on God's name that this is true. I call him as a witness to this fact. I let him hold me accountable if this doesn't come true, if this isn't the truth, if this doesn't happen. What happens in Genesis 22 is God makes an oath by himself, on himself. He swears by himself. It's very interesting. Abraham, throughout his story, um, a few times will make an oath, will swear on God's name. But here God goes through this legal process of making an oath on himself. And it's just saying, hey, this doesn't happen. You can hold me accountable. I'll hold myself accountable. You consider me worthless if this doesn't happen. He's coming in. And what he's doing is he's, he's lowering himself to our level to try to convince us that we can trust him. Because this is God. He could just say, look, I said it. Right? That's some of our, our parenting skills. Hey, you need to go to your room and clean your room. We're going to have guests come over. And they start to argue, no. Did you hear what I said? I said it. Go do it. This is what's going to happen. God goes, okay, I could do that. I, could, I have authority. I mean, I'm just sovereign. I don't need to explain myself to you. But he goes, hey, listen, trust me on this. Listen, by who I am and in, in myself, like, listen to me. This is going to be true. And so this is what the text says. By two unchangeable things, he's showing them the unchangeable character of his purpose. Guaranteeing with an oath. It's impossible for God to lie. Because one, he said it's going to happen. And two, he says, hey, hold me accountable. Let me swear by myself. This is going to happen. The scriptures over and over again say when God wants to do something, he does it. When he says it's going to happen, it happens. And so when God comes to creation and says, I will rescue this, he's going to do it. Despite the fact that it looks like Isaac's about to die. Despite the fact that the whole world might be in war. Despite the fact that we might have doubts and struggles. He has promised it. And it will happen. So Abraham and his descendants, they, they trusted in God. They were encouraged. He massages their hearts to get the blood flowing to this place of their soul where they can trust and believe. Where they can start to have hope. And likewise, you and I are called to trust God's unfailing purposes. The scriptures say his unchangeable character of his purpose. It's unstoppable, we could say. Nothing will get in its way. What he said is going to happen will happen. That's a source of encouragement and hope for us. We're called here in verse 18, those who have fled for refuge. 
that you and I have gone to him to find life and joy and salvation. These things he's promised us and have gone to him for refuge. And he's given us these promises so that we might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He's coming down. He's saying, trust me, hope in me, believe me. And so I, I think we could break this down um, on two levels here this morning. The first is we were called to likewise trust that God will prevail, that his purposes will be accomplished in our lives. With our past, with our struggles, with our victories, with our skills, with our futures, with our temptations, his will will be done. His purposes, the highest purposes of God for you and I will be accomplished. And so I think there are two ways that we get tripped up um, here. And the, the first is that sometimes we operate just the way our hearts and minds work. We would never say this, I don't think, but sometimes we operate thinking that maybe God's surprised by some of the things that have happened in our life. So we'll say this at the board meeting sometimes. When something kind of, a curveball comes to us, we're like, well, God knew about this. Like, it's not a surprise to him. We just need to get on his plan now. We just need to follow him where he wants to take us. But so, so someone gets sick or, or someone dies or whatever the case may be, we start to experience and feel Genesis 3 and we start thinking, surely God's plan can't be accomplished now. Was, was he looking away? I mean, is he surprised by this? Did this slip through his fingers? Abraham is, is about to sacrifice Isaac. And he's going, how is this promise going to happen? But the scripture is over and over and over going to go, God doesn't make mistakes. So my favorite, one of my favorite passages about this is from John 15, the sermon that Jesus preaches, the vine dresser, which is God is a vine dresser. He is the vine, Jesus. We are the branches. And, and God carefully and surgically and lovingly prunes us where we need to be pruned and gives us water where we need to be given water. And in all things works us, takes care of us, looks after us so that we would bear fruit for him. The scriptures are clear that there's not one aspect of your life that God is not in complete control of. Not one relationship. Not one temptation. Not one past experience that slipped by while he was looking away. Instead, every single thing in your life, including the bad things, the wrong things, passed through his loving hands as a vine dresser. He knows exactly where to put water and where to take away for you to get to where he is taking you. He doesn't make mistakes, but sometimes things come into our life where we do something and we wonder if we could derail God's plan. We wonder if this circumstance will still be able to work in what he's accomplishing for us, around us, in us. And then also sometimes we, again, we, we make the mistake. It's not an outward situation. It's, it's us. I mean, we stumble. We fall away. And we go, oh, no, we messed up everything. And again, the scriptures are going, no, you haven't. He saw that coming. He has grace for you. He's worked that into his plan. He who began a good work, Philippians 1, will be faithful to finish it. So we have hope, unchangeable hope, that God will accomplish what he said he will accomplish in our lives. So when he says we'll have peace, we'll have it. When he says we'll have life, joy, eternal life, we'll have it. It will happen because like a good vine dresser, he's orchestrating every detail for our good. Romans 8 all things work for the good of those who follow, who love, who are called. 
and then we can say that he will prevail in our world. He'll prevail in our world. Um, so we could we could say some statements like this: One day, human beings will live in peace. His, his purposes for creation will one day be fully and finally finished and completed. And one day human beings will live in peace. Which means this, there will be no war. There will be no war. There will be no poverty. The scriptures are very clear. If you want to see sin and you want to understand the depth of evilness, you need to look at two things. One, the fact that we kill each other. And two, the fact that there are people who have not when we collectively have enough. And they're done. Psalm 14. Don't look any farther than that. There's sin. There's depravity. There's the wickedness of our hearts. The depth of our fall. But one day the scripture said there is no war. Micah paints this beautiful picture of the instruments of war being reduced to, to agricultural instruments. There's no need for them. Micah says one day we're going to shut down the nuclear plants. One day we'll live in peace. We'll love each other. We'll take care of each other. We'll protect each other. His purposes will prevail. We trust that. We expect that. We cash that check in. Um, one day we can say this. Human beings will live in joy. There'll be no pain. Physical pain. Emotional pain. There'll be no disease. So oncologists will need to find a new job on the new heavens and the new earth. There's not going to be cancer for them to deal with. There aren't going to be children who are born and for whatever reason um, grow up not able to talk, um, able to think, um, able to move their muscles, able to live a life free of pain and constant seizures and those type of things. That's not going to exist anymore. One day humans will live in joy. Revelation 21.5 One day there will be no death, there will be no mourning, there will be no tears, there will be no pain. One day, we can say this, one day humans will live in worship. One day, there's no chasm between heaven and earth. The final picture of Revelation is heaven and earth combining. They're married together. And God is our God and we are his people. And his dwelling place is our dwelling place. And our dwelling place is his dwelling place. He is our son. He is our light. We see him face to face. One day we'll worship and have relationship with him the way we were intended. The scriptures say these are all checks that we cash in on because his purposes will be accomplished in our lives and in creation and in the world. And again, God promises and that leads us to hope and that hope will lead us to endurance. Let's keep reading here. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he says this, he says, Christians have an anchor. We have a, a, an immovable anchor, and it's, it's our hope. It's the Christian hope, the Christian expectation that the scriptures here are saying we cash in on, we know will happen because of God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness. The Christian hope is our anchor. Now we can notice, um, as we do in, in lots of different stories, the fact that you and I have an anchor means that there will be storms. You don't need an anchor if you're going to sit in an indoor pool. You need an anchor if there's a good chance a storm is coming. Something, you need something to keep you steady and safe. 
We notice this when we hear Jesus talking about a man who builds his house on sand and on rock and a storm comes. And, and we don't want to miss out. Hey, a storm is coming. The storm of life is coming and, and Christians have an anchor. Our hope. Our hope in, in what God has said he will do and what he will do. And our hope is described for us. Um, it's a hope that has, in verse 19, entered into the inner place behind the curtain. And then Jesus has gone there as a forerunner, becoming a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we can say this. Our hope is Jesus' resurrection and his high priestly work. His resurrection and his high priestly work. It's a hope that's entered into the inner place behind the curtain. So the metaphor shifts a little bit. We were talking about an anchor. Now we're talking about the temple. And so in the temple, you had this place called the Holy of Holies. It was the very most sacred place on earth where the presence of God was most present. And only one man could enter it once a year, the high priest. And he would go in to make atonement. And the Christian belief is that Jesus, having won a victory on the cross, resurrected into new life, and then went to the inner curtain, went to the Holy of Holies, Hebrews 1, where he now intercedes for us as our high priest. Notice we're back to Melchizedek. Remember, we, we started talking about him in chapter 5. He took a break as the author kind of rebuked us and warned us and challenged us and encouraged us. And now we're back. In reality, the last chapter or so has really been one elaborate plot to get us ready for Melchizedek. To try to convince us that, hey, we need to know this. We need to pay attention to this. He's back to Melchizedek. This is what our hope is. Our hope is that Jesus has done something. He's died on the cross. He's resurrected. He's ascended. And he's doing something now. And so we can say a couple things that are very, very, very important about the Christian hope. The first is that it's not optimism. The Christian hope is not optimism. So it's not a vague feeling that things will somehow turn out all right. That's not our hope. Oftentimes, Christians get painted as, sometimes we deserve it. Sometimes we get painted as people who whistle in the dark. And so, I mean, whistling in the dark, you're in the dark, you're in a scary place, a place of danger, and you're whistling yourself to try to convince yourself that it's going to be okay, when in fact, all the evidence points the other direction. So Christians are seen over here in a corner with their hands in their ears, with a blindfold on going, no, 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 no. The whole world says we're going this way. The whole world says we're going towards war and death and destruction. But we say, no, God's going to do this. God's going to recreate everything. And we're just ignoring all the evidence. And in the end, it's a misplaced hope. It's whistling in the dark. It's pretending that things aren't the way they are. But in reality, that's not what the Christian hope is. It's not this vague idea that things are going to work out. The Christian hope is in a person, in history. So it's a common assumption and, and kind of implicit in some of our teaching and the way we talk that, that maybe we have faith in faith. Like our faith is that our faith will turn out to be right. When that's not in the scriptures. Our faith's in a person. Our faith's in something that happened on a cross and that happened three days later. That's what our faith is in. So listen to this. Our hope, it's not optimism. It's a historical reaction. It's a reaction to something that happened. It's a reaction to a God who throughout history has intervened and in history, in space, and in time has made promises and done things. He's come to Abraham and said, I will bless all the nations. He's led a nation out of slavery into freedom. He incarnated himself in the man Jesus. 
died on a cross and rose again. So in a real sense, you and I have, have a lot more guarantee than Abraham did. Abraham had a promise. We see the start of that fulfillment. We see the start. We see the cross, the resurrection. Christian hope is not covering our ears and our eyes and saying, no, despite what the whole world thinks, we're going this way. Christian hope is this. It's reprioritizing the evidence. It's saying, hey, 2,000 years ago, a man died and rose again and started this work of new creation and salvation and forgiveness that is increasing to this day and will one day be complete. And so despite what happens in my life, despite what happens in the world, we look at that and say, that is proof. That's what our hope is based on. It's not a blind hope. It's not a blind trust. It's not a blind faith. It's a historical reaction to a God who throughout history has acted in space and in time and will continue to do so. He's the forerunner, Hebrews says. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. I love this. He's, he's gone to the future ahead of us. He's gone to the presence of God. He's been resurrected, made new. He's a forerunner. And he's become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So again, God makes a promise, which leads us to hope. The hope is an anchor for our soul. And here's what Hebrews is saying here. The hope is what will lead us to endurance. This hope, this anchor, is what will get us through the storm. So we'll end by, by saying this. Our only shot to persevere through the trials of life is to stay vitally connected to who Jesus is and what he is doing. Our only shot to persevere. Our only shot to be able to keep the faith when every cell in our body is saying this is not true. When every cell in our body is experiencing Genesis 3 and saying there's no way God is coming through on this promise in Genesis 12. We have a hope that anchors us, leads us into endurance. Our shot, our what he's saying, he's saying, hey, you're going to be able to persevere if you hold on to this hope. Which again is why he wants to talk about Melchizedek. He says nothing could be more important than you understanding more and more and more and more about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing right now. Because that and that alone will be the anchor for your soul. When you need to cash in a check that God will do what he said he's going to do. Because he's done it, he's doing it. And we know it's going to happen. It's an anchor, our hope, that leads us to endurance. And so that's why we, and that's why Christians, since the beginning, have met regularly for worship. That's why Christians read and talk about and act out and discuss the same stories over and over and over and over and over and over again. They're trying to stay connected. We're trying to keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't want to lose our focus on that. Because then the storm hits, we have no anchor. Sometimes we wait till the storm hits, we try to get the anchor. But you don't Amazon order the anchor when you're in the middle of the ocean and storming. You have the anchor on board. You know how to use it. So we stay vitally connected to who Jesus is. 
We work and work and work and think and pray and worship together and live in community to try to understand more and more and more what He's done, what He's doing, and what He will do. We let that guide us into the future. We, you and I, are children of the promise. We're heirs of the promise. We're those who have fled for refuge. And the scriptures are saying, unlike some human promises, this is a promise that you can count on. God's promises don't change. He doesn't go back on them. He can't. God's promises have already begun to be fulfilled. And so when the world around you, when the world inside of you seeks to tell you otherwise, we look at the cross. We look at His promises. We look at each other. We endure. We persevere. We let His promise guide us into hope. And let that hope carry us through into endurance. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for our time this morning. I thank You for the Scriptures that You've given us. I thank You for Your promises. I thank You for um, the cross and for all the the different ways and times and places that you've acted in history. I thank you for people like Abraham that we can look at and be challenged by his faith and also be encouraged by the mercy and grace and patience you showed him. And I pray that, that we would, even today, have our hearts massaged into a place of trust. That we would respond to your promise with faith, knowing that you're trustworthy, that you're faithful, that your plans are unfailing, they're unstoppable. And that in that we would find hope a hope that will anchor us through the storms of life. A hope that will allow us to fulfill our, our purposes. A hope that would let us repeat, like Habakkuk repeats in chapter 3. We heard it this morning. That even if the olive trees don't bloom, even if everything around us starts failing, we trust in you. And you give us strength. You give us hope. You give us life. So I pray that our hearts today would be more and more transformed into that place of trust. That we would find endurance and perseverance, faithfulness and obedience through the hope that we have in you. A firm hope, a confident hope, a bold hope. We love you. We need you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.